Welcome to Craftsmanship, a podcast discussing technical skill in the contemporary art world told through the oral history of fabricators. My name is Harriet Salmon. I independently produce this series as a free resource and as a record of the last 20 years of fabricators' experiences. Who are fabricators? A fabricator is someone hired to assist in the production of an artwork. Unlike the traditional artist-apprentice relationship that could contain an element of mentorship, a fabricator provides a technical skill to an artist as a paid service. Fabricators can be found in foundries, darkrooms, wood shops, and laboratories in roles ranging from master printmaker to studio assistant. They are part of an unseen mechanism of the contemporary art world and their skills produce objects essential to the global art economy, a market currently estimated to generate over $60 billion in annual sales. With scholars and institutions meticulously documenting the intentions of artists, who is recording the stories of these craftspeople? This podcast will document fabricators' experiences to shine a light on the amazing breadth of talent in the field and to capture this particular moment in the art world. I'm interested in conversations about hierarchies within craft versus concept, questions of intellectual property, trends of de-skilling in the art world, wealth disparity, and the conflict felt by many fabricators between working in art production and being artists in their own right. I'm Harriet Salmon, the host of Craftsmanship, and I'm chatting today with Jason Brown, the owner of Alchemy Paintworks. Alchemy is renowned in the contemporary art world for producing highly technical and beautifully colored spray coatings for sculpture. Clients include artists such as Urs Fischer, Frank Benson, Takashi Murakami, Talba Albach, and many, many more. I'm looking forward to discussing with Jason how we built an in-house painting department for Jeff Koontz's studio in the early aughts, the transition into owning his own business, the challenges of bridging the gap between the custom auto painting industry and fine art, and how he currently holds an international patent on a specific coating he invented. Today we're recording in his shop in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, and I should mention that there's a lot of activity going on with artworks being prepped for painting and packed to be shipped. So there's a little bit of ambient sound in the background of our conversation. But I was looking at your guys' website uh, for Alchemy Paintworks, and under the About section, it said that you were dedicated to providing the highest quality spray coatings for artists and the design industry, specializing in paint finishing for metal sculpture as well as repair and restoration. So that's kind of a nice definition of... It's a long sentence, right? ...what you guys do. (laughs) Um, But could you talk a little bit about what makes something a spray finish versus... or spray coating versus a like regular paint, like how do you guys define sure. spray coating? Yeah, okay, spray coating. We just define that as a liquid paint, usually, that is applied with compressed air to the to the substrate, to the form, as opposed to, you know, some other traditional methods of brushing or, you know, rolling. Yeah, and it's a technique that's usually or originally used in kind of car, automotive stuff? Or definitely. Not okay. Definitely. Yeah, well, we've, we've borrowed heavily from the automotive aftermarket and repair industry. Gotcha. Yeah, we, we've borrowed heavily because they're producing a lot of amazing products and tools. That's where the innovation is coming. That's where a lot of innovation comes, yeah. yeah. Not exclusively automotive. There's also 
just regular industrial woodworking, wood finishing, mm -hmm. also utilizes spray finishing. There's just also art, artists using airbrushes. Yeah. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. And um, here in your studio, the setup, you have quite a large setup with like two spray booths, is that right? Two spray booths, yeah. And those are um, kind of modeled from custom automotive. That's right. Automotive, well, automotive refinishing. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Yeah. Um, and you guys were founded in 2009? Yeah, that's about right. I mean, well, technically, yeah, that's when the business was officially founded. And, okay. But I had been working with artists prior to that. Yeah, what were you bit. doing right before? Like, what kind of led you to open your own business rather than working directly with one artist? Well, I was working for an artist. I was working for Jeff Koons, and I was, I was his painter in the studio. How long were you in that role? I, was, I started in that role around, I, I forget, it gets a little fuzzy, because I was kind of doing two roles at once, because mm -hmm. I studied traditional oil painting and rendering, and I was one of the many people oh. painting the paintings, uh -huh. you know? And there became an opportunity to get into the spray painting for Jeff. Yeah. Yeah, through a set of sculptures that he was doing with the, with the Foundry Upstate, Polished Alex. What series was that? That was the remember? Popeye series. Okay. Yeah, so that was the beginning of the Popeye series. And they had the contract to create the works mainly from start to finish. Yeah. You know, all the mold-making process and the cast aluminum. And we realized after, after a while that, well, I should, I should take a step back. Um, first, Jeff was going up there to review the paint uh, swatches, the colors, the gotcha. sheens, things like that. Because the foundry was They were producing them. that, yeah. 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 And Jeff went up there a while and a few times and would, review the, would personally review things. And then, you know, it's, it's a bit of a long trip, and so he needed yeah. someone to, to kind of do that for him. And so he made a general announcement to the studio, who, who knows about spray painting and whatnot. So <laughs> I, like, raised my hand, and, and he's like, you know, come on, come on in. And so we're talking, and, you know, we're talking about spray painting. And, and so I got the opportunity to, to go up and you know, review the swatches yeah. and, and work with Jeff in that capacity. On, on his behalf to review the swatches. And it turned out that the painting wasn't actually being done on premises. Oh, they the were outsourcing they were, it. They were outsourcing To like an auto it. Yeah, to, to an auto guy. Yeah, a really great auto guy named George. Yeah. Um, and he did great work. But it was a little bit like, it was a little bit removed in that George is working alone. Yeah. And he's getting direction from the foundry, and the foundry's getting direction from Jeff and Jeff's people. And then so it's like, you know. <laughs> a lot of steps removed. It's yeah. a lot of steps removed. And so it led to some frustrations in yeah. the process. And it was too convoluted. It needed to be, to be more direct. But they proceeded with a couple sculptures. Mm -hmm. and, and while they were proceeding with a couple sculptures, Jeff was... You know, like, why don't we start to try to figure out how to how to paint them ourselves here? To do this in-house. Yeah, we might yeah. need to be able to figure out how to do this in-house. And so they continued on the path of creating a couple examples 
And then Jeff had me, you know, buy some spray equipment. And, you know, I got to, <laughs> I was painting on like the aqua resin. Yeah. Is that what the straps. pieces were at that point or were they metal? They were. They were, the, the pieces were highly detailed, what you would call like the, the, um, the positive, the, the, the prototype, mm-hmm. you know, the, the master. And then a mold was made for that. From that. To cast it in That's metal right. as an addition. Yeah. yeah. Would go into okay. wax. So they would, they would cast that and produce a wax version of that as, you know, the, the whole foundry, you know, the process. And so we had a lot of scrap, aqua resin, you know, <laughs> yeah. inflatable pieces. So that was where I started mm-hmm. at Jeff's studio was, was painting the aqua resin pieces. So were you, I mean, other than the kind of knowledge you had going into it as a young painter using spray paint style materials, were you kind of self-taught or did you kind of reach out to, oh. to auto, custom auto people for Yes. Day? Well, okay, so I was, I was mostly self-taught at that period. And going back prior, my, my previous experience with painting, there was another experience before that, uh, briefly for a little period of time, where I worked for Let There Be Neon, which is, you know, quite a, quite a fantastic uh, neon company. It's been around for, for a very long time. And there came a couple situations where they would want signs to be painted mm-hmm. in the basement you know so <laughs> why do they always make painting happen in the basement I know yeah. painting often happens you know where it can that's for sure yeah, yeah. so Jeff built out like a spray booth situation for you well we he, he, he was like you know build something that you need you know an area and I was saying uh-huh. okay I need this area back here he had an exhaust fan mm-hmm. the minute we kind of had the tools set up to spray anything and paint anything, then he was off with it with a new sculpture, uh-huh. and it was already it was like okay, we're making this sculpture now. It was a it was a dolphin that he made for Sonnabend. Okay. Yeah, I think that was around 2002. Mm-hmm. So I was probably working on getting ready for that, testing things around 2001, I would think. So that was so it's it all kind of started around 2001 or 2002. And, yeah, we started out with the very lowest quality tools, like literally a Husky spray gun from, from Home Depot. Yeah, I was going to say your setup here is a lot different than an sp- yeah. exhaust fan and a yeah. spray area. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's something that came over time. That's something that, that I learned about yeah. over time, as, as I think anyone that... For finish, quality of finish and for health reasons? Absolutely, or? yeah. Now, initially, we were working with artist acrylics so mm-hmm. the stakes were quite low in terms of exposure yeah when did you switch to I mean what is what is the um, material that you currently put through the spray guns mm-hmm. is it a urethane paint? it's a well it's um urethane primers and clear coats okay so it's like a it's a composite really typically it's like an epoxy or urethane primer so that's like the base cover to make to prepare the surface. Right. That's that's the initial primer to bond with the material that you're painting on and to get adhesion. Mm-hmm. Usually that's usually that's uh, has some element of a chemical bond that's that's happening. Mm-hmm. And then we like to use paints that are a polyester 
resin base. Okay, because they're hardier. Possibly. <laughs> I don't really know a lot. A lot of the chemistry of the automotive paints are well. You can see in the in the safety data sheets that um, they're a little complex. Yeah. They have a lot of ingredients, or at least they they try to list a lot of ingredients to try to keep their competitors from knowing exactly what they're up to. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. And then, so doesn't when that they, make a safety data sheet less effective if there's? Well, it, it does. It does, I guess, in a very granular way, you know. But they list everything that's in there. Yeah. And then they throw some, you know, curveballs. They, they try to throw some curveballs, exactly. You know, and they give a they give a, a range. Of the percentage, where they really, where they really try to obscure what they're doing, is when they talk about how much of an ingredient is in their product. They say it could be anywhere from one percent to seventy-five percent. Huh? Yeah. And that's to throw off competitors trying to. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. It just generally, they they're complying with the law, but you know, I think it's a way for them to. There may. I'm not. I don't work in a paint laboratory or company so I don't know all of the reasons they do that but yeah. I think that that's part of the reasoning but you you have made your own paints from scratch or you kind of yeah, use existing kind of, paints yeah we've done we've done that yeah sure we've we've done that I prefer to stick with paints that are already pre-designed to have a, a really quality outcome yeah so you don't have to right test the that's possible right. scenarios that's right. Because we oftentimes we have to educate the customer on how so much work goes into designing these paints to perform effectively and you know continually, yeah. and and the, the the results need to be reproducible. I mean, just for our, so our listeners mm-hmm. know, like a lot of the work that you paint ends up outside. Yes. And finishes that are capable of being outside even for a short amount of time need to perform at a much higher level because of UV and elements than a piece Definitely. that's going to be in a controlled gallery or museum setting. Yes. It needs to be done with more rigor, more steps, yeah. and materials that are more durable. Um, but we have experimented with paints for customers. Mm-hmm. We've kind of created our own. That's a lot of fun as well, but it is challenging because we can't... Well, we've had to learn a lot about paint science and chemistry yeah. and what the limitations are. And when we, when we deviate from, from, like, when we deviate from established materials, uh, we, we really can't give any guarantees. So, yeah. you know, the, the choice is, the, is on the artist. Yeah, I mean, one thing that... Um we've talked about in the past that I find very interesting is your kind of use of language. Um, like you just saying the word guarantee right Mm -hmm. then, you know, I'm, I'm curious, uh, how you use language to talk with your customers. I mean, you're obviously going to run into words like a perfect quote unquote finish Mm -hmm. or very shiny (laughs) or these kind of descriptors. Mirror. Mm -hmm. Mirror like, yeah. Like what, do you have like a style guide of words that you do use? Do you have words that you mm-hmm. try not to use? Oh, sure. Yeah. I think that I've learned the hard way over time in the choice, sometimes maybe in the poor choice of words that I've used mm-hmm. to in describing things. And I, you know, 
I have run into trouble. What's like a danger word? Oh, gosh. <laughs> uh, okay. Like, for instance, a danger word might be uh, repair something. You know, uh-huh. we're hiring you to repair this artwork. Or can you repair this? You know, so it's just uh, the criteria of success. What is one's understanding of what a repair is? What, what is possible with a repair? You know, how much budget do you have for the repair? You know, and so we talk a lot about, you know, repair in terms of if you want an inconspicuous repair, meaning it looked like it was never, you know. Like seamless bringing seamless. it back to how it looked before whatever damage That's happened. Right. That you, that like most people would not even notice that it's been damaged. Mm-hmm. We talk a lot about that's going to be an extremely thorough process that's going to cost a lot of money. Yeah. You know, we can perform inconspicuous repairs on certain things, mm-hmm. but at, at a lot of cost and, and input sometimes, yeah. you know, depending. A lot of that is involved in the, the color that we would apply to an area that it needs to meet and blend into the surrounding area like perfectly and imperceptibly. Is it ever so hard to match that you just repaint the whole piece? Well, that would be more of our other option, which is, you <laughs> option know, B. <laughs> option B, which is, which sometimes involves, yeah, like painting an entire segment of something. Mm-hmm. So you're, so it's really an art of like hiding your tracks, you know? Yeah. And so... Like, if it's something like a white soloit, that makes perfect sense, mm-hmm. potentially. You want it to, to look you know, white and clean and new. Uniform, yeah. Uniform, that's right. And then other times when something maybe is very busy and, you know, like a, it could be any, I mean, it could be anything with, uh, like a kusama with, you know, lots of dots or something. Yeah. You know, and we don't want to have to recreate all the dots. We just want to really fix... Yeah, the scratch. The, the two dots that the got dots. hit with the That's right. whatever it was. Or the, the, the background and the one dot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It also, we deal a lot with sheen, so we don't want it to look like every other dot was submerged below a layer of glossy clear coat, and then this one dot is standing out proud on the surface. Oh, yeah, it never occurred know. to me that yeah. spray coatings is like a three-dimensional Absolutely. thing because you've got the yeah. primer, the pigment, and then this top layer yeah something sometimes there's no top layer or sometimes the paint is a top layer Uh certain systems but yes it can be very much three-dimensional even with texture you know if the whole thing has a a a fair amount of orange peel what we call orange peel because not everyone wants a mirror finish that's right not everyone wants a mirror finish it it may be matte you know so you know and then we have to match the the matte is very important it needs to be blending in properly. Do you work with a conservator on these things usually or like is there an... Most often. Most often. If if the artist isn't there as an intermediary it's usually a conservator? Most often. Yeah, most often conservator. But things come through things do come through independently from a range of sources from art handlers, collectors, museums, insurance companies. I mean... Yeah. Any which way. Directly from an insurance company. Well, or I guess they're you're just right. involved. They're involved. Yeah. They, they, sometimes they're, depending on the value, they're prominent. 
other times they're in the background. Yeah, because, yeah. I mean, I guess we should also say the kind of level of, I mean, you mentioned value, the kind of level of um, value that the pieces you're usually dealing with is very high. They, they're, like, large. They tend to be larger outdoor blue chip artist pieces. So there's, especially if it's a um, repair, there's quite a lot of um, money on the line for Absolutely. your clients. Yeah. yeah. And that, yeah, that sometimes translates to more stress, you know, more. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Also, I think it's uh, something that I find interesting about your kind of puzzle piece in fabrication is that you rarely make a piece from scratch. Objects are brought to you. You add a spray coating. Yes, it's true. We don't make anything hardly here other than surfaces. Yeah. Have you uh, yeah. have you ever made the thing even at Jeff Koons's or were you always uh, kind of like one see. segment? No, even at even at Jeff Koons studio never actually made anything. Although at the neon shop I, I did. I was yeah. fabricating. At the neon shop I was fabricating. I was fabricating boxes and and I was mounting the the glass, the neon, I was doing the wiring. Mm-hmm. I was assembling, I was installing, I was, I was doing a lot of fabricating there. And to go back, since we're on the subject of that, that was some of my first spraying experience with actual industrial sprayers and industrial paint that was mixed in, you know, separately in a container with the three components, the, you know, the, the color, the hardener and the reducer. Mm-hmm. And then blend it together, and, and then poured into a, a paint spray gun, and applied with a with compressed air. That mm-hmm. was my that was I think my first experience doing that, and I was a little bit hooked on that, even though the yeah. quality was pretty low. But I was pretty fascinated with that experience. Yeah. I thought that that was a really exciting experience, having come from in the past using spray cans. Yeah. You know, and 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 realizing the limitations of spray cans. I mean, what does the kind of gun system that you just described give you that a spray can doesn't? Mm-hmm. It just gives you such larger marks. You can uh-huh. make larger marks, essentially, you know, and you can tailor the marks to what you want to achieve. Now, now, I mean, and this was back, gosh, this was back in the late 90s. So there were, people were always using um, caps from different things, custom caps, customizing, you know, stealing uh, from other products and putting them on spray cans to achieve different, oh, you know, funny. yeah, to achieve different types of sprays, mm-hmm. but nothing really for like efficiency. So the, yeah. the spray, the, the spray tools, the industrial spray tools are designed for maximum efficiency. Yeah. Cause know? they're, um, yeah. production line style. Right. Yeah, technology. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a lot of fun to, to learn, to learn about that. Yeah. I mean, can you, yeah. um, walk us through your equipment now? Because it seems like there's yeah. a whole different yeah. setup here. Yeah, the equipment now, we have two downdraft spray booths. And the downdraft is the, the air is, is cleaned several times. You know, it, there's various levels of air filtration uh-huh. to clean the air coming in. And then, and then in the winter, it's warmed as well. Okay, so, yep. the, so you need to get particulate out of the air before it even enters the, the room, yes, okay. exactly. So we essentially have a room 
right? And so we're bringing, we're bringing air in and simultaneously taking air out. And the way that my spray booths are designed is to bring in slightly more air than what's being taken out. And that's designed to prevent foreign matter from coming in through any of the, the, the cracks and crevices. Yeah, and that yeah. foreign mat- matter could land on a mirror finish, finish and make like a little blip. Exactly, a yeah. blip, a, a spot, a speck. Schmutz. Exactly, schmutz, <laughs> anything. I mean, anything that, you know... Right. Um, undesirable. You know, cont- it becomes a contaminant, mm-hmm. you know. And we talk a lot about contaminants here because yeah. blips, you know, matter, foreign matter. I mean, you know, foreign matter is a fact of life. Yeah. I mean, I noticed you have a wood shop next to you yeah. in this warehouse building. It's is very that- painful to have that there. <laughs> I cannot. I'm in a, I'm right now, I'm in a, a building that has multiple tenants mm-hmm. and... It's an industrial work building. <laughs> you have a contamination concern. Yes, we do have a contamination concern. Yeah, it's something that we're always concerned about. But we've spent a lot of time. I, over over the course of my time specializing in finishing, have spent so much time thinking about foreign matter particles, you know? Yeah, and I mean, this and space, you really customized it, right? I, mm-hmm. I think I saw some early pictures of you pouring yeah. the floor for it. Yeah, that's right. Is that for the downdraft That's part? right. Yeah, we had to excavate the floor in many areas. Wow. We had to cast, you know, we had to pour a floor. Mm-hmm. So we essentially are making tunnels in the ground. For the air to... For the air, it. right, for the air to, for the air to be drawn from ground level uh-huh. through a filter. That filter collects all of our overspray from our painting process. And... It makes for very clean paint jobs, certain certain orientation of, of the object. You know, really, they're designed for automobiles. The down the downdraft. The downdraft, yeah. Yeah, because I've seen kind of uh, spray booths where it's like a, a, one back wall has That's it. That's right. And that is not as good for what you do because the paint, the overspray is being like sucked across something instead of over it. Exactly. Okay. Well, since we paint a variety of different types of things, there might be some instances where that arrangement might actually have been better, you know. But I think universally, the downdraft yeah. is, is I think, the best. the best design. And then you guys have a crazy um, paint mixing area? We have a paint mixing room. Again, that is all... And also, I should go back, like, all of the engineering and the rooms that we've created are... Heavily regulated, yes. You know, by the DEP, the FDNY, the how city often, of New York, the state of New York. How often do you get inspected? And, oh, um, well, when we were installing everything and submitting our drawings and everything, the the inspections come and go. There are yeah. multiple inspections and and these things. Um, now it's like an annual. Yeah. But there are inspections for different things. There's right to know. That's usually an annual paperwork filing, you know. Inspections are actually, regular inspections are, are fairly rare once we're established. Yeah. You know, we're, we're paying, our, we're paying our, our fees and we're not changing much. And what is their concern? The health of your employees? I mean, is well, there each, flammables? Well, each entity has its own concerns. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Well, sometimes I even get confused myself between combustible and inflammable. Certainly the storage of the paints mm-hmm. as well. That's why we have, we were talking about the mixing room. You know, that, that has to be designed a certain way. So For everything's spills. stored in there. Yeah, everything's stored in there. Yeah. Yeah. And, but we, we have this, um, yeah, we have, our mixing room has a, a mix bank, which is in the industry, you know, where you have a, a, a rack, a shelf, where you store your ingredients and there's a, an agitator a system to, to keep the materials uh, uh, consistent over time. Oh, so it constantly is kind of yes. jig- jiggling them? Yeah, it stirs them. Cool. There are blades. There are, little, there are little lids with blades. And actually, we're looking to go to the next innovation in that. Mm-hmm. We're, we're hopefully first on the list. It's something that I'm, I'm just so excited to have one day. I'm hoping it's already being used in Europe. I'm, I'm such a nerd when it comes to this stuff. <laughs> All I want for Christmas. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's a mixing machine. Yeah, it's it's a it's a round cylinder, and all of the all of the paint ingredients go into the cylinder, and rather than having a, a, a rack with blades that are mechanically spun, the the cylinder slowly rotates. Oh. And the, so the paints slowly slosh around in there. Interesting. Yeah. So it, and it moves slowly and it's quiet and it's just a contained unit. And there's this, a digital gram scale inside. And via computer, the materials are dispensed within the cylinder. Wow. To levels of, of perfection, you know, to, just to just to like micro micrograms. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Because it's enclosed. Yeah. I mean, it seems like you're really um, the finishes that the level of precision that you're required to bring these finishes to for the art world um, means that you're kind of on the edge of technology. You're trying to get the next... Trying to be. <laughs> yeah, we're looking at what's available. Thing. Yeah, a lot of it, we, there is there is technical innovation that mm-hmm. we're absolutely interested in. It can also go the old, it can also go backward and just, you know, there are plenty of great painters out there that are doing great finishes just the old kind of the old-fashioned way there's also something to be said for you know just kind of you know what's working yeah you know what works and many painters every painter has their own unique way of just arriving at you know the quality of finishes that they're that they're trying to produce and it's just Every painter, well, I know I speak for myself, but for me, it's just an accumulation of all of the mistakes that can and do happen. Yeah, so it's a craft. Yeah, yeah craft, and yeah. then and then you you have to just kind of when you encounter one of those, and you have to, you know, recall you know, what what what's going to work to eliminate this. Yeah, yeah. So, but the innovation part is something that excites me and, and something that I'm interested in. Yeah, yeah, um, for sure. And you. You mentioned that you have patents on some yeah. things. Can you talk a little bit about yeah. that? Is yeah, that's something that that's something that we have a patent on. It's a it's actually an international patent on. Right now, it just has a working title. It's well, it's hard clear coat. You okay. Know? So it's it's like hard hard clear coat. So it's a hard non yellowing polishable clear resin that can be applied by spraying. That, that, That's amazing. Yeah, and it's a process as well. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, so 
And I've learned a lot about the patent process. Yeah, how long how long of a process? Oh has gosh, it been? it's been a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah, a couple of years. Yeah. And is it and still it leads in up the works to, or it leads up to. It's been it's been finalized. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Uh, now I just, you know, I don't know if I'm, you know, maybe we'll edit this out, maybe not, but now I just have to pay the, the patent attorneys it's like yeah. <laughs> to get the actual, to get the paperwork. It's like, wow, oh my goodness. Because they have to like research the field to make sure you're not infringing on anyone else, right? That's part of it. That's optional. Oh, and that's okay. something we paid for. That's yeah. called, that's called a provisional patent search. Mm-hmm. And my, my lawyers performed two of them. And that's a way to optimize your patent. And so what you do is you, you write your initial patent and and you and then you file your for patent pending mm-hmm. and you have a one year you have one year to then do some research and do what you need to do. And it's like a placeholder, your patent pending. When that year is up, then you, you file for the patent, you know. And so within that time frame, you have the option to do a provisional patent search. Uh, and so we performed our first one. And what you do is you learn about what's called prior art. Mm-hmm. So they do keyword searches. They look at, you know, scientists and lawyers. So it's, so it's lawyers that are also scientists. Cool. Yeah. You know, and sometimes multiples of them, you know, uh, they work together. And we talk about the process. And then they go and they look through all of the patents that use my wording. Yeah. I mean, I imagine that's probably the auto industry and the paint industry. Oh, gosh. Everything. Adhesives, wow. anything, oh, laminates, so, um, you know, anything technology. So, I mean, we, yeah. we, had a, we had a patent that was very close to my process, but it was just used in, in computer chips as something totally different. It was used mm-hmm. as like an adhesive. So is, is your patent on a process and a material combined, or is it yes. just, yeah, okay. So it's the thing, the patent is, is the whole thing of like, because, well, for instance, my materials, the chemistry of my materials are within my patent. Mm-hmm. They might be like also used in the manufacture of hockey sticks. They might be... <laughs> For example. <laughs> yeah. They might be used, you know, in a small... To hold something on something, you mm-hmm. know, and a mic, you know, part, a, compo- a component of another thing. But the, the you using your process with that material, no one else can do it. That's right. Because I've... No one, no one was spraying it. Yeah. No one was spraying it like I That's was. That's amazing. Yeah. Do you tell artists mm-hmm. that you hold the patent on it? Or? I, I've told some, yeah. They're, yeah. they're interested. They want to use it. But it's also, it's so specific and it's, I have, I have ideas. And I, once I get the final paperwork, I will probably promote it in some way yeah. and try to, you know, I mean, I see could what see interest there might be in using it. Especially artists that do a lot of outdoor work. Mm-hmm. It could be a huge difference. Um, it could. Yeah, and it's not it's not like a silver bullet kind of a patent. It's not, you know, also there's most all patents are just, you know, there's very few uh, truly new art is what the patent attorneys, you know, explain to me. That's a very, very, very tiny percentage of so, patents are actually something new. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about kind of developing techniques specifically for certain artists? Um, I know you've worked closely with people to get a finish that's very kind of 
customize for their work. Yeah, specific. Yeah. yeah. I think that's another thing that we that I have come to specialize in in my business. We enjoy that aspect of things. And yeah, I think that that just comes with, I think, me being an artist, you know, mm-hmm. and, and trying to anticipate like the direction they're going in, like what's important to the artists at that moment, what they're trying to achieve. Are they... Um, what what aspects are are important? You know, what what do they want to try to highlight or minimize or you know? And also, one of the things that I learned at Jeff Koons Studio with going back to my experience with the paint was just spending a lot of time trying to find ways to make the paint look like it wasn't there. When the paint can be an afterthought, and it's like, oh, and, and just, and we want to paint it red, you know, then that's, we're not usually a good fit for that. I mean, yeah. We talk a lot about that internally, you know, like, when are we, when are we a good fit to work with artists on projects? And Do you turn down artists if it's not a good fit, or do you just, like... I think we've probably said occasionally, like, I might have turned down a couple things here and there that I just thought... Probably wouldn't be probably wouldn't be a good fit. Um, yeah, I have. Yeah. I've recommended maybe a, a different you know scenario. Mm-hmm. I mean, also like with your amazing technology and your crew of people who are highly trained, like just painting something red, there's doesn't make sense for them to pay your fees. That's right. It's us- yeah. usually not. It's usually doesn't make sense economically. There's no value added. I think what we really specialize in is, is like value added mm-hmm. you know um, paint so we're we're bringing yeah. technique and an experience and specific hopefully we're bringing specific qualities um, if you work project. on a finish with an artist through this kind of personal process will you only use that process on their work do they ever have conversations with you about kind of wanting that to be their um I don't even know the right word. Their thing. <laughs> right, like their intellectual property. We've had people that when we come across a color or an effect or things like that, a material, a paint. For instance, one artist we were working with and they said, have you ever sprayed this for anyone before? And I said, no, I've never done this like this for anyone before. And they said, "Could would you mind? And I said, would you want me to like for this to remain your your thing, kind yeah. of like your your recipe, your secret. And she was like, "Yeah, that would be great." I said, "Sure, we can do that." Yeah. You know? And we haven't, you know, we haven't done it. We have signed. We have had artists like, you know, say after the fact, as they've become more organized, ask us to sign certain like non-disclosure forms or confidentiality yeah. agreements and things. And, and are those based on how a piece is made, or? In some cases, yes. Yeah. In some cases, they can be, like, all-encompassing. Wow. Yeah. I could think of a couple instances where, where, we've, had, where we've signed some things that are fairly all-encompassing for anything that you could think of, you know? Um, you know, we sign them and, you know. I noticed, kind of looping back to our uh, conversation about language that you use, when I was kind of doing a little research before this interview, I was Googling you guys. And you don't have that much of an internet presence beyond your website, um, which was crazy to me because you're so well known in the art world um, mm. for doing this. Is that 
kind of a product of these non-disclosure agreements or? No, I think it has nothing to do with that. Our non-disclosure agreements are mainly pretty private mm-hmm. and we ask permission from the artists to publish the things that we do on our website. On your website so yeah. we have permission on for everything, including yeah. the things that I've done for Jeff Koons mm-hmm. that were not part of my business per se, but that were part of my history. Yeah. And and my experience there. And he allowed me to, to post those things. And no, I'm not sure why. I do get in the community that a lot of people have heard of, of you know, mm-hmm. the work that we do. And a lot of people say a lot of very nice things, and, and we're really appreciative of that. And we're just kind of below the radar, just quietly. A lot of what we do in here is just a lot of toiling away on the work. You know? <laughs> um, one question I ask every fabricator is, what is your favorite tool? Mm. Yeah, I would have to go with the, with the German-engineered spray gun for that one. Yeah, the what, SADA. The SADA? SADA spray gun is like my preferred. Why? You know, well, you know it's just a wonderful piece of uh, engineered mm-hmm. uh, machinery. Um, I mean, the guns are quite finicky, mm-hmm. right? They need to be clean constantly. Oh yeah, they have to be. They have to be clean thoroughly and and like you know preferably immediately after you use it, mm-hmm. because the the paints that we use are chemically reacting, and so the longer it sits, the harder the harder it gets. And so, and another reason I like that specific brand of of spray tool is the design is such that it makes for easy cleaning. Uh. I've seen on so on your social media that you often go on site to do um, mm-hmm. kind of repairs or paint jobs. Can yeah. you talk about some of the... I mean, you get flown around the world sometimes to do some of these yeah. things. Can you talk about some of the crazier or yeah. more fun experiences to do that? Oh, definitely, yeah. Well, well recently I went, with, I went with a conservator. One of the conservators of MoMA invited me to go to Hong Kong to restore... Uh, a corporate, you know, corporate artwork mm-hmm. on a busy thoroughfare, yeah. you know, in the I financial district. You are cheaper to move to the sculpture when That's it right. comes to that size than yeah. bringing it to your shop. Absolutely. Yeah. Another good one was uh, Cutter. Went to Cutter. It's a very small. It's a very small um, island country okay. you know, off the coast of Saudi Arabia. For for a piece in a collection there. It was going in the in the new in the new airport. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it was in large, large segments. And it needed to be freshened up. You know, the artist wanted it to look to look fresh, to look clean. Yeah. That was the intent. And so he put us in touch with the folks that bought it and said, you know, you two work something out. And ultimately we ended up Refinishing this, it's a monument, it's a huge sculpture. Yeah. In pieces. Who is the artist, can I? Urs Fisher. Yeah. Yeah, the lamp bear. And we refinished that. I flew a team over and we and we and we finished that on a on an art on an airstrip. Wow. Yeah. Do you have like a portable kit that you take with you? We do have things that are portable. Although what we what we normally do, some of the stuff is so large, you know, that we have to have. 
we usually specify that that they provide that for us. You know, for instance, a clean quality air compressor, uh-huh. toolboxes, um, an enclosure. Usually, sometimes we work together with various people. To, yeah, you were on an airstrip. Did yeah. you build a tent? Or that's interesting. That building a tent, but ultimately a tent was built. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but see. And oftentimes it does come up. Everyone wants to like, you know, build a tent because it's a natural, it's a natural idea. Yeah. But what I often have to explain to folks is that you're creating an enclosure. You're creating an enclosed environment where we're going to atomize, like you said, flammable liquids, Mm. you know? So there is a great many considerations to take when you're going to put, you know, somebody in a tent (laughs) with flammable, you know, flammable gases. Yes, no no smoking. Right, no smoking signs, right? You got to have, you know, normal fans. Um, The blades are ferrous, and so you can have a a spark from a fan, and that's that's not good. So typically exhaust fans for for flammable liquids is is aluminum and and non-arcing, and Mm -hmm. it has fully enclosed and designed in such a way that, that the invisible flammable gases don't go in to where the, um, the you know, the, the sparks are. Yeah. yeah. So it's usually a, a long dialogue and it's usually a great number of emails and things. What are some of the damages? Like how do these pieces get damaged? Is it just to over time? Does like... Well, has anyone driven a truck into one of them? Like, what are what are the? Yeah, no, that's that's a, a good question. I think that well, oftentimes these things, the straps, from craning them, mm-hmm. not always. You know, it could have been it could have been stored improperly for a period of time. It could have already been displayed outside for a number of months or years or whatever, and so it's you know has wear. More and more lately, we're seeing, you know, this is something different. I don't know. Lately, we're seeing a lot more, and certain artists invite this, although most do not, of people climbing on art. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I don't know if it's a byproduct of kind of, you know, social media, (laughs) but people kind of feel once it starts to happen, certain artworks, it becomes kind of established. Mm -hmm. And people are climbing on it so we'll, we'll it'll be interesting to kind of see what happens with huh. with this small trend that that i've noticed good for your business possibly not great for the artist that's right <laughs> Big thank you to Jason for meeting with us. Listeners can see some fantastic images of Alchemy's projects and their impressive facilities at www.alchemypaintworks.com. A final credit to the Bryce Arizabaglia Quintet for our lovely theme song titled Mount Fuji. And please check us out at www.craftsmanshippodcast.com and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes. 